Hello everyone and welcome to the first live SEO Q&A of season two of Search with Kanda. In a way, this is episode 38, I believe, of season two of Search with Kanda. I am one of your hosts, of course, Jack Chambers-Ward, joined by the one and only Mr. Mark Williams-Cook. How are you today, Mark? Very well, excited to be back doing more live streams. I think it's been over a year since I've done one. Yeah. I think the COVID, kind of during COVID... <laughs> We, I stopped doing them because I just figured everyone had a, enough of seeing people on video. Yeah, uh, the kind of it's nice to be able to do it in person, right? This is our first time doing it in person. My first doing it with Kanda at all, which is nice. But I've done kind of remote stuff like you've done before on some of my other podcasts. So hopefully this is all working. You can all hear us. <laughs> you can see us on LinkedIn and stuff. Fingers crossed it's all working. I've only ever done it on YouTube before, so... Fingers yeah. crossed. Every, you, let us know in the chat if you can hear us and things like that. Please do let us know. We will be going through a bunch of questions and stuff like that. And we'll be cutting into a little bit of the recent SEO news since we haven't had an SEO news catch up in a while with Mark and I. There's been a lot of cool guests recently on the show, and I'll touch on a couple of those episodes later on as well. But before we get to all of that, let's give a shout out to our sponsor, the wonderful people over at Systrix. And Systrix are, if you didn't already know, the SEO's toolbox. Search with Canada, we are supported by Systrix, and you can go to systrix.com slash SWC and get some of their fantastic free tools, such as their SERP snippet vent. I stumbled straight away. There we go. We're live, folks. Welcome to the live stream. <laughs> such as their SERP snippet validator, href lang validator, and checking your visibility index. That is their patented visibility index, courtesy of Systrix. And of course, tracking those all important Google updates. That's systrix.com slash SWC for all of the fantastic free tools. And of course, systrix.com slash trends for Trendwatch and systrix.com slash blog. We've talked a lot about the visibility leader stuff. I covered that with Loose Rawlings last week. That is a very in-depth, very long article. I highly recommend you go and check out. And for those of you who are listening to the podcast, that will of course be linked in the show notes as well at search.withcanda.co.uk. I'm really pleased you had to do that because there is always with Systrix and SERP snippets, there's some real tongue twisters in there. It's the SERP snippets generator that always gets me. <laughs> so um, yeah, doing it live as well. And with not just doing the podcast live, it's the added complexity of mm. doing the, the live stream with the video, having live questions, having our overlays. So lots of extra complexity and it exactly. just has to be perfect off the bat. <laughs> and this segues us perfectly Ooh. into something I did want to talk about before we dive into the Q&A, which, um, is, which is about complexity and updates, um, specifically the recent Google updates we've had. And this actually I saw in one of the pre-submitted questions. Um, we've got a couple about Google updates and sort of how to tackle them, what to do with them. And one interesting thing that we've seen in the recent updates, this is from a tweet from Lily Ray, who's at Lily Ray NYC on Twitter. As a result of whatever recent update, because we've had that little cluster of helpful content uh, update, the core update, uh, product views update, all clustered together, the Google search quality rater guidelines no longer rank on page one for the search term 
Google search quality rater guidelines. <laughs> and I just love the irony of that. That's, that um, is de delicious irony on behalf of Google. <clears throat> we do see that sometimes a lot with these, you know, the initial results of the update. We've seen a little bit of wobble here and now. I think we're seeing a lot more now, like you said, the kind of combined and kind of like accumulation of these updates. Everybody was very excited for the helpful content update and then nothing really happened apart from some very spammy sites were kind of filtered out. But then it's all kind of built together and we're seeing quite a lot of change. Again, Citrix have covered that on their blog. I know Lily Ray has covered it. Glenn Gabe has covered it as well. Highly recommend you go and follow those people on Twitter and check out their coverage. But I love it when stuff like that happens. When Google knock themselves off of them. <laughs> Not even the position one, page one for their own like it's a branded term it has the word google in it like <laughs> around as well search quality. oh my god ridiculous ridiculous <laughs> well it looks like uh everyone can hear us hello to everyone in chat if you do want to post a question while we're going feel free to drop it in on linkedin chat um thank you to the dozen or so of you who submitted questions ahead of time um i don't think we've filtered any out we're just going to go straight we're in straight in. we haven't discussed answers <laughs> to these we briefly scan uh you know scan read them but we're just gonna go in and we're do... about to disagree and have a big fight live <laughs> on linkedin <laughs> yeah so um if you see me you can't i can't even do this because everyone can see me i know like, yeah, yeah yeah there's no cut me off now <laughs> uh should we should we kick off certainly yeah yeah so let's dive in with one of the pre-submitted as you mentioned let's kick off with how to do topic cluster and keyword cluster at scale without paid tools. And this was actually one you suggested actually cutting out there, Mark, originally, because the answer is you can't do it without paid tools. The key there is at scale, right? And we talk about this a lot when we talk about using tools and how so many people rely on tools a bit too much. Sometimes there is a real kind of positive to being able to do a manual review of a website and actually go into search console and you know review first party data and all that kind of stuff. But tools save you a lot of time doing a lot of that stuff. Take also asked, for example. Hello, also asked. Nice promo. <laughs> Expertly yeah, swung yeah. in. Take also asked, for example. You could manually go around and copy and paste all of the people also asked data from your SERPs. But why bother when it can do it at a massive scale for you? Same with so many of these other tools. And for topic clustering and keyword clustering, for me, keyword insights is the answer, right? And I'm not just saying that because they sent me a lovely bag <laughs> and a thank you note. Shout out to Andy and Sagunth, and thank you very much for sending me my first ever SEO swag. But genuinely, genuinely, I had Andy on the show uh, quite a few weeks ago now. Again, I'll put a link for that in the show notes if you are listening on the podcast. And it was a really interesting discussion about how their machine learning tools work and how they understand sort of context of those keywords, how you can really build those clusters at scale and you can chuck in tens of thousands of keywords at once and it will boil it down into a few hundred clusters and really lay things out for you in terms of what should be your hub page what should be your spoke all that kind of stuff and yeah for me i know since kind of speaking to andy and kind of working with keyword insights a bit more it's become a real key part of my content process and strategy there i know you've used it quite a lot as well mark you think that's kind of fair yeah. to say right <laughs> yeah so i'd like to point out that I always refuse swag <laughs> from any other tools just so they're not crossing my palm with silver. Um, but I do agree with Jack. So on, on ways you could do it for free, obviously there is, well, 
it's not even free. I mean, you can use things like the GPT-3 um, model, but that is, um, you get some free tokens there, but you will essentially have to pay for that. But what they've done at Keyword Insights is they're actually building their own models um, specific for the task. So you tend to get a lot better results. So if you're doing it at scale and you want good results, I just can't see a good business case for doing all of that work yourself unless you're going to do what the team there did and actually release your own tool to do it. If you're not doing it at scale, then your the human brain is perfectly kind of built for this task because <laughs> you kind of have your own learning models. It's sort of how the brain works. So you you know on a small scale, um, you can just kind of use common sense um, along with obviously some basic keyword research. But you can do the clustering part. But yeah, I I can't. I don't think there's a good answer for how to do topic clustering with keywords at a large scale without paying anything if you're not making the tool yourself from scratch which i just can't see a good business case again for. you are kind of paying in time and effort and experience and all that kind of stuff right even if it's not literally handing over dollars to another person cool on to our next question from the one and only mr brody clark hi brody if you are joining us uh we've covered brody stuff quite a lot on the show shout out to brody very good follow on twitter how much should site owners pay attention to the dates for when Google announces updates? And is this information actually helpful? That's a toughie. Isn't it just? <laughs> Brody coming in with the hard-hitting questions here. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of discussion about this um, recently. Uh, someone had written an article of, are we at peak SEO, I think it was called, <laughs> which I, I guess is the opposite to is the is SEO dead, which we had for like the last 20 years. Um, so. What's interesting about this question is I do think there has been almost like a hard cutoff in how Google handles their algorithm updates. So historically, and by historically, I am talking to the SEOs that are watching, so maybe 10, 12, 15 years ago. I see a few of you in the chat. Shout out, <laughs> Shout out to the old school. <laughs> I think when Google did updates then to their algorithm it was a lot more manual in terms of they had you know they've got their team working on various parts of the algorithm and they would focus on something say like they did with penguin on links and they would have a look at the problems they're having with quality and they would test out various different solutions to this different metrics they want to weight differently run some tests and then apply that obviously and and then we get the result and at that time, when we had all these updates, like Big Daddy, Florida, Red, um, we would get normally a little bit of information or it would be quite apparent what part of the algorithm, if that makes sense, it was impacting. Like, you know, Panda was thin content, Penguin was links, etc. Um, Caffeine was about the infrastructure and rendering. Now, I think the way... Um, and there's a little bit of imagineering going in here because I've never had a tour behind the scenes of <laughs> what the Google engineers are working on. But as far as I understand, I think there's a lot of machine learning stuff happening in the background, mm -hmm. not necessarily on live SERPs. I'm not saying, you know, that's how that works. I'm talking about the training of various models for different verticals and just using feedback loops from users from quality rater guidelines to essentially assess if the algorithm's doing a good job and if it's not um it can make some changes and then again assess how close it's getting 
The issue, I think, with this and why they lump them as broad core updates, so for the ones that are core, is that I'm not sure any one person or even any one team necessarily knows what has happened mm. behind the scenes there. They know what the goal is that they're, they're, they're training towards, and that's the same goal Google's been telling us since the dawn of Google. Um, I think it is still worth listening to answer the question and thinking about the dates for a couple of reasons. There are some things they will do specifically, like the product reviews update. Um, what, what's come out of that that's helpful and actionable? Well, Google released a list of like 20 things. We yeah. went through it on the podcast. We talked about it on the show, didn't we? Yeah, 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 yeah. So if you are doing product reviews, here's 20 things you should include. That's really important because that's firsthand. That's this is what we're building the algorithm around. So you should be aiming to do this thing. So that should be in the hands of, of your team. Yeah, exactly. and how we said that on the show before, like how often do you get that information? How often do you literally get a basically a checklist from Google saying, this is what you should be doing for this specific thing. If you're an e-commerce business and you have product reviews, this is what you should be doing. No ifs, ands, or buts, basically. <laughs> yeah. In terms of the core updates, um, I think they're less helpful in terms of um, what's happening because it's just basically, you know, make good content, be helpful to users. <laughs> and it's like, cool. Don't do spammy, dodgy stuff. Yeah. Like, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, it's useful knowing the dates because if you can correlate um, traffic drops, traffic increases, then at least you have a chance of figuring out what is going on. So it could be that, yeah, we did have a load of paid links that we sat on and didn't do anything about. <laughs> or um, I was having a conversation yesterday. Someone was asking me, is it worth hiring specialist writers to, to write about this mm. topic or should we just get generalists? And my question was, you know, how are generalists going to write with expertise about that subject? And they said they're not, but will it be good enough for ranking? And the answer was, well, maybe um, <laughs> it might be good enough to rank. If, but... if other people are also doing that, then yeah, maybe. <laughs> yeah, or may maybe the algorithm is not good enough at the yeah. moment. But the point I was making to them is if you know that the algorithm is aiming for expertise and you know you're publishing stuff without expertise, in the long term, that's not going to work out well for you <laughs> because one of these core updates, you'll get caught. Yeah, yeah. And you're building on a false foundation of, oh, hey, we're ranking, we're doing a good job. Then there's a core update that finally they close that tech gap, work out, <laughs> oh, actually, it's not that good. Yeah. And then you're suddenly like, oh, hang on a minute, what did we do wrong? We did yeah. everything right. But yeah. deep down, you know, you didn't. So yeah. short answer, yes, with some caveats. Um, but definitely, I think you need to be honest with yourself about the strategy tactics you're, you're employing. Yeah. And I think, funny enough, to plug Systrix once again, what they do with their visibility index, they actually have little like flags and tags each time there's an update. And you can really, really see how much it affects the overall visibility of a site as you go through and look at that data. I know it's been invaluable for us and some of our clients looking at that from kind of a bigger picture kind of thing. It might be affecting a particular part of the site and you can then filter down to that particular directory or whatever it is. But Systrix does a really good job. And I know Steve and the team are hot on it as soon as it's announced, like this is rolling out right now. They're straight in there with the tags, straight in there in Systrix. So yeah, if you are using Systrix, I highly recommend that if you do want to tag and keep track of all that kind of stuff. And it's a brilliant way of presenting it to clients as well. You can literally see we've had eight updates over the last 12 months. This one did was positive for us. This one was negative. We're still positive, all that kind of stuff. And uh, yeah, yeah. Should we jump in with a live question? Yeah, please do. Here? So we have got a question in chat, which is, I want to ask... 
Some experts like you, flattery will get you everywhere. <laughs> what is the biggest SEO mistake people are still making? Ooh, I know it's the one I've harped on a few times, but disavowing links drives me mental. And I know it's a thing I've talked about on the show. It's the thing I rant about. And yeah, people disavowing links for the sake of disavowing links drives me crazy. And the fact that, you know, in previous places I've worked at, this was regular practice. Basically every month you would review the disavow file. You would basically review the backlink profile and see if there's anything new to add to the disavow file and stuff. And from my experience, I've almost only had a positive experience from the other way around where I went into a disavow file and actually found something that probably shouldn't have been disavowed and took it out. Whether that actually, you know, eventually pulled back through or whatever is a, is a guess. I, w- I wasn't paying attention to that account long enough. But yeah, I see people spend so much time, you know, the kind of typical agency tick box kind of stuff I see in a lot of agencies. And I think it's a complete waste of time at this point. I think talking about Google updates and like the spam updates we've had earlier this year as well, they're getting better and better and better at just filtering this stuff out anyway. So why bother wasting your time, you know, spending an hour going through all the different backlinks and all that kind of stuff when you could be spending that doing something far more productive that will get you better results. How about you, Mark? Is there anything that stands out to you? So many to choose from. (laughs) Um, I guess I see lots of Shopify sites going live now for businesses moving into e-com. One of the common mistakes I see on Shopify is when People are putting products into multiple categories or collections, as they call them on Shopify. And that's normally with their theme generating a different URL for the same product because it's including all the categories it's in. So if you had like a, a wooden chair, it might be in forward slash kitchen furniture, forward slash wooden chair, but then it's also in the wooden furniture collection. So there's another different URL. Um, and in general, um, filtered and fasted navigation on e-com so not thinking about which pages are actually valuable to index and just having, you know, you've got, I've seen sites with maybe a hundred products and then you start looking at search console and there's like 50,000 pages, <laughs> you know? So yeah, that, that, they're, I think the two, four, and that's people that are doing SEO. I mean, mm. if it's just in general, um, you know, if it's just in general people, then pretty much anything like people don't even i've seen people not bother with title tags but i'm assuming you mean seos yeah specific seo mistakes um let's dive into another live question here switching over to thinking about what's on the serps specifically for you mark so i'm I'm dipping out of this one that's lucky for me can you can you please answer my question which is our video snippets are dipping out since june any explanation there uh no excellent (laughs) um i'm very sorry ankit without kind of delving into your site i probably can't answer that um i'm not entirely sure what you mean um what you're defining as video snippets there um obviously google did just recently change what they're doing in search console with their video detection so Mm. they are definitely having some false positives there and google's spoken about that in terms of they would rather give you a false positive than not detect the video yeah Um, but there's all kinds of reasons um that you could be seeing uh, a drop in video snippets from things competitors have done to um, to site errors to other people using schema. We recently touched on it when I had Annie May on the show, who I know is watching in the chat. Hi, Annie May. Hello. <laughs> we talked about TikTok suddenly being included in SERPs as well. So if you're doing things that are specifically, you know, you're aiming for a snippet and to get your video featured and you're hosting it on Vimeo or YouTube or whatever, they're now including TikTok 
in those you know short answer kind of things competing with the shorts and things like that that youtube are doing so you've got more competition there from other video platforms there as well as you said mark there are a million different moving factors that could be affecting that but yeah without diving into the site i don't think we can give a fully concrete answer to be fair next up how much weighting do you put on the core pillars of seo and what do you think they are currently from a said in forbes e.g content links and technical in general I think those would be the three kind of main categories, right? That you would divide the three core pillars of SEO into. Would you agree with that, Mark? Yes. Yeah. Okay, good. <laughs> Thank God Agreeing for that. so far. <laughs> <laughs> no punch-up so far, ladies and gentlemen. But no promises. We've still got time. Um, but yeah, I think it's interesting. We talk about this with clients a lot. I know I have done in the kind of how far does one of these things get you? And I know you and I have talked about this, Mark, in the studio when we're talking about onboarding a new client and stuff and their website is an absolute technical mess and you fix all of that stuff and you're like cool what's next because all the technical stuff is fixed and i think a lot of people will leave the kind of technical stuff ticking over and over and over for so long again not necessarily because you know they want to but there might be lack of resources or lack of staff or developer time or whatever it is but i think a lot of the technical stuff can only get you so far if that makes sense and i think that's Less so like, what would I put the weight on it? But that's kind of where I lean first is when I first look at a site, I look at it from a technical point of view before I even dive into the content. I would then maybe look at links and then maybe look at content third. And that's kind of my process when I look at uh, when we're onboarding a new client or auditing a site, that's kind of my process going through. I would think technical side of things first, what is like fundamentally broken? Why aren't they performing? Why are they coming to us as SEO consultants and experts and as an agency? And then looking at, are there any, again, weird links, unusual links, fantastic links they've not noticed, some opportunities there. And then thinking about the content, whether they've not done content at all, and you can then start building the strategy from there, or you can audit the existing content and find out what is performing, what is working. So yeah, not necessarily weighted, but that's kind of my order that I would do it for a client. Would you agree with that, Mark? Are we about to have a big fight? Uh, I don't think we need a big okay, fight. Good. Not yet. Um, <laughs> <laughs> I look at it slightly differently in terms of I I look at technical work as an amplifier of mm. the other two. So unless your technical is really bad to the point where, you know, search engines can't crawl or index your site. Uh, they often are. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Assuming we've passed that threshold, then um, what you're essentially doing is amplifying the impact of, of your content and links by having good technical SEO. So again, part of the answer, I guess, is that classic, it depends. <laughs> because if you have a million page website and you have a one technical fix that scales across a million pages, you, are, you could well see some decent traffic uplift from that. If you have a 10 page website, it's unlikely there are many technical things you can do outside of crawling and indexing that are massively going to impact your site. So the focus would need to be on content. Content and links to me are intrinsically linked. Mm. Pun intended. Yeah. So content, when, when we plan content, we normally plan how we're going to get links from that content as well in general, or it's at least part of the content strategy because you won't rank in competitive fields for competitive terms without links. You just won't. So they are, you know, they are vital. It's a bit like how, what's more important in a car, wheels or fuel? It's like you're <laughs> not going anywhere with them but as long as the wheels are roughly round yeah. you know then i'd rather have some fuel so it is a balancing act 
Have I you think... not seen the Flintstones, Mark? You don't yeah, always you need can... fuel. You can have wheels and just run with your That's little legs. That's a type of fuel. <laughs> it's like a PBN leg That's thing. true. That's true. Um, so yeah, technical is more of an amplifier, but content and links, yeah. You can't, can't rank content that doesn't exist, and you can't rank content that exists that's competitive without links. Nice. Speaking of revamping websites, things, how to do a proper revamp of a website without compromising on the ranking? An excellent question. Mm. I would prefer it if you didn't because it gives us great things to talk about on the <laughs> podcast. We love a good autopsy of a don't migration. We, don't we, just? <laughs> it is a topic that comes up quite a lot, isn't it? Because I think migrations have so many moving parts to them. Something that, like a butterfly effect kind of thing. A little thing can suddenly explode into a massive problem overnight without even somebody realizing. And maybe you have developers who are less SEO savvy and SEOs who are not as technical kind of butting heads and coming at it from different directions of, oh, no, we need to do this for the SEO. It was like, right, but we need to do this because of the UX and the design. And, oh, we need to do this because of how the JavaScript is running on the site. And those could be three different things pulling the site in three different directions. But yeah, I think. Managing migrations is something we've covered a, a few times on the show and is the kind of thing that keeps us employed <laughs> as an SEO agency. Um, but yeah, I think it's a, it's an interesting thing because we talked even about like moving from CMS to CMS a little while ago as well and how, you know, how different sites can be seemingly to the user, but actually from a Google perspective, they basically remain the same from a structural perspective. So yeah, what are, you, what are your thoughts on this one? Yeah, so without going into a technical step-by-step -step what's included <laughs> in a migration, some things that I think are important to not compromise rankings is firstly to communicate to all the stakeholders the importance of SEO in that process because most people outside of SEO don't kind of get that when you change the website, you are gambling with your kind of rankings. Mm -hmm. So you can do that by giving them uh, making them aware of the value of traffic and giving them some kind of forecasts for what happens if we keep gain, lose traffic. Analogies always help. One analogy I like to give is it's a little bit like moving house, the different kind of processes. So when you're auditing what it is you're migrating, it's kind of like you're going around the house deciding what to pack up and <laughs> you, you're going to need, you want to keep the sofa. So that's got to move. But which room is the sofa going to fit in? Yeah, yeah. and it, it's like we've, we've got to move these vases. They're fragile, so they need to be packed separately. Then <laughs> but you the, talk, but of, they've got a high value. They've yeah, got high value. Go. <laughs> and then it's talking about the, the, the timelines of when it's going to move. And then part of the migration plan, as Jack touched on there, is where are you going to put these things in the new house? So at the, the moment, we're helping a client who originally, to use that analogy, their plan was they were essentially moving a mansion into a one-bedroom, first-floor <laughs> apartment in that they wanted to migrate a few thousand-page site into a couple of pages. And we were trying to use that analogy to let them know, well, look, you, you know, there's nowhere to put the sofa. You're not, you're not going to fit everything in. <laughs> yeah, people like the sofa. So, um, so making stakeholders aware is one thing. Um, giving everyone uh, realistic timelines, having a way to benchmark before and after. So things like rankings um, and traffic and making sure everyone is aware, again, of their responsibilities. Oh, and, and lastly, I'd say, We'd sometimes just talk about migrations as one thing. I would think about what kind of migrations you're doing. So Jack mentioned there, you could change content management system. That's one migration that could affect mm. impact SEO because your front end is probably changing how things are laid out for Google. 
If you're moving server, that could potentially impact rankings. If you're changing URL structure, that's another type of migration. If you're moving the domain, that's another type of migration. So there's actually four or five different types of migration and you need to work out how many of those you're doing and how they might impact you. Uh, and lastly, migration is primarily around mitigation of, of loss. But the other thing you can use migrations for is opportunities. So when your site is not doing something that you know will be beneficial, can you build that into the new platform to increase your chances of even if you do lose a little bit of traffic, you're mitigating that by increasing traffic elsewhere. Um, and yeah, and lastly, any metrics that you do know impact rankings. So take Core Web Vitals, for example. Ideally, you want to be moving to at least better or the same or at least better ideally than what you're currently on. Otherwise, obviously it's, it's something objectively that you know could negatively impact rankings. Well, speaking of Core Web Vitals, leads on to a nice little live question here from Sally Raymer. Do we have any experience on creating clear metrics outside of Core Web Vitals for managing display ads on organic landing pages? I don't know. <laughs> okay. In short. I'll leave this to you, Mark. So, yeah, I'm, I'm taking this as an SEO question um, in terms of, I think we're looking at maybe our display ads impacting ranking of landing mm. pages. That's how, is, is that how you're interpreting I was I was seeing it as a PPC thing. That's why I was, oh, okay. why I was assuming I didn't know. <laughs> well, managing display ads. I'm not, Sally, if you're in chat, if you want to um, kind of explain a little bit more what you're asking for because i don't want to go off and give you an answer that is something different from what you're ex <laughs> what you're expecting um i mean i was taking that as an seo type question mm. in terms of obviously we know there's various ranking things about not showing too many ads um and about ads tend to impact the user experience which is why i think we may be touching on core web vitals here. yeah yeah um i mean the thing i'll say about core web vitals is and why i think people underestimate them they're actually three very interesting metrics because you can apply them universally to any website and there is a definite, this is, if this number is smaller, it is good. And if it is bigger, it is bad. So there's very few metrics and I can't actually think of any that apply in this way. So the classic one that comes up is sometimes people use things like bounce rate as a, as a metric for you know, um, a page quality. And mm. as we've talked about many, many times in the <laughs> podcast, you know, it sucks as a metric because you could, you know, if, if I Google a query, I land on your page, I spend 10 minutes reading it, it's the perfect answer and I leave, that's a 100% bounce rate, yep. but arguably the perfect user experience because you've given them the, um, the answer that yeah. they want immediately. So in terms of, um, so Sally said, yes, exactly, um, an it's question. an SEO question. So <laughs> assuming, it, Mark. okay. So assuming we're talking then about um, display ads performance and Google ranking. So there's a few guidelines. I think it was 2014, 15. They first talked about um, they talked about having a negative impact on rankings if essentially you're blocking the user experience with ads. So there's yeah, a few things here. Firstly, in terms of metrics, I would stick to Core Web Vitals because they are a really good um, way of seeing how ads are impacting user experience, especially things like first input delay, um, ads tend to mess with those. Um, and we know those things are objective metrics used in rankings, arguably how much we don't know. Um, 
in how many episodes ago, four or five episodes ago, we talked about the ad standards. Oh, yes, um, we did. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so we will find a link and put it in the show notes, or I don't know if you could find it while we're doing this. I certainly can. For essentially um, the... Um, this was around Google ads and them talking about the type of ads um, that were most hated and I won't say loved, most tolerated <laughs> yeah, uh, right. by users. So there's some pretty clear guidelines to Google about things like interstitials, pop-ups, that they have to be easy to close. They shouldn't be blocking content. Um, so it's the Coalition for Better Ads. Yep. Um, so if- that is betterads.org slash standards. And there's all details there. At first, we were quite skeptical of it, weren't we? When we were looking at it, like, what is this? Who, who do they think they are? Turns out it's pretty official <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and endorsed by Google and a bunch of other people. So, yeah, highly recommend you go and check that out for more specific ad recommendations and stuff like that. Yeah, so that, that's what I would be using, essentially. If I needed any more kind of steering outside of Core Web Vitals and outside what Google's published in terms of, you know, basically... Do- Google's just doesn't want you to get in the way of the answer that people are looking for. But if you want to take that to a next level, Coalition for Better Ads, I'll check it out. They've got some really granular guidance on placement types of ads um, that will result in a positive user experience. Awesome. Moving on to link building. Is Harrow worth the effort or you, do you prefer any other alternative for link building? And this is actually something I touched on recently when I had Jenny Abuabaya on the show. We're talking about digital PR, how it can benefit your SEO and all that kind of stuff. And we were kind of getting to the point and kind of agreeing that Harrow is kind of oversaturated at this point. And we have a little catch up in the studio pretty much every morning. Any any of us who are in the studio who have the Harrow uh, subscription will be like, oh no, here's another weird one. What on earth is this? And we'll screenshot it, share it in the group Slack and all that kind of stuff. It's full of like weird... Seemingly, they already either already have the answer and they're just trying to justify their own answer. One of them a little while ago was, what is the one app that is draining your iPhone battery? I was like, maybe there isn't one. Maybe it's more complicated than that. You're writing the headline and the answer before you've even got the expert commentary. I can imagine a bunch of people can be like, not as simple as that. And that's not a sexy quote that you want for, for a Harrow kind of thing. And I think Harrow is just full of nonsense and rubbish. Some of it's good. We've had some success for clients and stuff through Harrow and things like that. Uh, we also talked about Turkle, which is another similar one. Jenny brought up uh, helperb2bwriter.com, I think it is, uh, which is another option if you're focusing on like B2B businesses and stuff like that. That is an option there as well. So I think there are quite a few alternatives around now. I know people have been using like Unlocked and a few other versions as well. Uh, I think, again, neither of us in the digital PR team, but I know some of the other guys in the PR team here at Canda are using a few different alternatives as well. So I think it's worth branching out from, if you're just using Harrow, it's definitely worth looking at other stuff, especially if you can find niche specific stuff for you and your clients. I know again, Jenny and I talked about that and how useful that can be in terms of finding the right audience that actually might convert for you and things like that. Rather than going out to an incredibly broad thing, you can find a niche specific thing that can work really well for you as well. What are your thoughts on this, Mark? When was the last time you looked at a Harrow? So, yeah, with, with Harrow, I mean, I think you ideally need to set up some kind of inbox filtering mm-hmm. to um, highlight ones that are worthwhile. I learned that a, c- a couple of weeks into it, yeah. Yeah, it's t- <laughs> quite time-consuming. That said, I've had quite a few nice links from Harrow. Yeah. Um, yeah, some of the things are really weird, um, but I found people like reading articles about things that are really <laughs> weird. Good point, um, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, um, I guess 
I think Harrow is still worth the effort, but I wouldn't just do Harrow. So when, yes. when um, you're asking there, do you prefer any other alternative? Successful link building, to me, you need, a, you need to spread bet. You need to um, not put you know, all your chips on Harrow. You need to be doing different things to earn links. So I certainly, if I was allowed one link building method, it wouldn't be Harrow. Yeah. But it's certainly part of the mix um, if, it's also if, free, which helps. Yeah, exactly. If you're coming, if you haven't got anything else, sometimes, you know, just a really great opportunity lands in your inbox and you reply in 30 minutes and then you've got a decent link. You can't ask for much more than that. Yep. Yep. Moving on next, another pre-entered question. Is location tagging images still effective from Matthew Dorrington? So this is an excellent question yes. that I'm pleased was pre-submitted <laughs> because... I had to actually go off and do some research on this. So for those that don't know, if you take a photo on most decent digital cameras or even on your phone, you'll have uh, EXIF information, metadata attached to that image, which will tell you all sorts of things, sometimes like the location the image was taken, details about the hardware that was used. Um, and you can add other data mm. as well, like license information, things like this. Um, and the last thing I knew about this, I realized when I was asked this question, was from literally 10 years ago. Wow. When Matt Cutts mentioned it in passing and it had stuck in my head. And he said that they reserved the right to use that information in ranking. And I asked on Twitter, because I've got lots of lovely SEOs that help me out when I don't know things. <laughs> and there was tumbleweeds. <laughs> yeah. So very kindly, um, John Mueller stepped in and said, I'm pretty sure it's only the licensable information that's used. If we used other metadata, it would be trivial to show it. And then someone would have done a blog post proving it. And <laughs> after this, I had about three or four people reply in the thread, all explaining they'd done various tests um, of adding additional metadata to pictures and everyone had said they had no impact, no results. So it doesn't look like it, no. Saying that, talking about complexity, mm. there is a blog post on cogdogblog.com. That's a tongue twister. <laughs> uh, which is titled Google broke image search for creative commons and hardly anyone noticed slash cares. Uh, <laughs> oh my goodness, he's right. If yep. you go to Google image search and do a super broad search for just something like dog, have a look at images, and then you've got the tools menu where you can, uh, you can sort by usage rights. And if you select creative uh, commons, according to Google, on the entire internet, there is three images of dogs under the creative commons. We know that's not true. It's probably at least four or five. <laughs> Um, so it's completely broken. And I just found that quite funny that obviously yeah. Google said, well, we probably use the license information. But in the one case, then when we went on to test that, it appears to be completely broken. Yeah. So no. Um, <laughs> the other thing as well, uh, for those that don't know, basically any type of image compression. So the plugins that do it, the websites that compress your images, one of the first things they do to save on file size is actually strip out all of that metadata because attaching that metadata does make the image heavier because um, it's contained in that PNG, JPEG, whatever file. Lovely. On to a live question here from Raphael Simois. 
redirecting a product to the category 30 days after the product being a 404 would be good or bad in your opinion and why? What do you think, Mark? So we made a flow chart about this and it does, I hate saying it depends. Oh no, everybody, um, everybody drink I, if you I drink talk, out there. In general, I will talk to the e-commerce client about things about such as how often their products are being discontinued. So if a product is out of stock, obviously you would not want it to 404. You would ideally like it to say it's out of stock and ideally enter your email, you know, be alerted when it comes back. If products are going um, discontinued, so you're never going to have them again, my general process without knowing the specifics in your case would be firstly to update that page to say the product is discontinued and link to, if you have them, any other alternatives, like if it's a new model or something like that. So again, you're giving the user a decent experience. Weird enough, Amazon do this incredibly well. I don't know if you've ever noticed that, viewers out there, you click on a thing and it's like, oh, there is a newer model available, by the way, and it's available for this price. You're like, right, okay, yeah, right away. <laughs> and then, yeah, my decision would be based on the search term. So if the new model, for instance, of the thing has a big overlap in search terms, I would then, after a while, 301 it because yep. the intent is the same. If for instance, the new version, whatever it is of that product, has a different search term. And I thought there would be ongoing searches for the old term. I would probably just leave that page as discontinued and link to the new one. So you're explaining to the user. So you know what they're looking for, but you're giving them information and pointing them in the right way. Only if there is absolutely, only if two other conditions are met, which is there's absolutely no other close alternative product. And if that product has incoming links, would I 301 it to the category page? If there are no similar products, i.e. you cannot serve that intent, and there's no links to that page, I would probably 410 it, so 404, 410 it, because otherwise you are kind of adding to your technical debt if you're discontinuing lots of products because you're going to be managing potentially tens, hundreds, thousands of redirects over time. But for very little traffic. So if I'm not getting a lot of traffic, there's no links, which those two things would normally correlate. It's unlikely you'll be getting lots of traffic if nobody's linking to it, then I would just let the page die. Fair, fair, yeah. Moving on to another live question here from Mohammed Assad. Is it better to have multiple Google Analytics properties for multiple languages or just one? For example, example.co.uk, huh, for example, and example.com.au. What do you think, Mark? Uh, so in that instance, I, I would have properties, <laughs> yeah. different properties, because otherwise, if you try and stretch the same property out, you're going to have you're going to have to deal with like cross domain tracking stuff um, and adding in exceptions. You're going to possibly break sessions. More hassle than it's worth. It's more hassle than it's <laughs> worth. So in that case, yes, separate. Nice, nice and quick straight away. On to another pre-submitted one here. Do thinking more. Back to link building, but also kind of business as well. I see comments on having a link building strategy. As a small business, should we worry about this or should we concentrate on good content that builds authority and attracts links from Anthony Dibble? Uh, you should always concentrate on good content. That's what we've learned from Google, right? <laughs> um, exactly, exactly. Helpful content, everybody. That's what we need to focus on. Um, but yeah, I think it's an interesting one for particularly people who are on small budgets and small businesses who are first starting out with, you know, 
branching out into SEO and thinking, how can we get the most benefit for the money that we're spending for this sort of thing? I think it, I hate to say it, and I'm going to say the thing, it depends. <laughs> it depends on your industry and your niche and things like that. Certain, you know, certain industries are going to lend themselves to attracting a lot of links through content. We were just talking to a, a client the other day about harnessing the power of Google Discover, for example, something I've not really done with a client before, but we think their niche and their specific industry is going to work really, really well for that kind of stuff. And we've seen some impressions. So there's some so there's some intent there from the users from a search console perspective. So we know the opportunity is there. So I think it's understanding where your users are and kind of where they're coming from. But also, like you said, Mark, you can't go wrong without, you can't go far without building links. So you're going to have to do a bit of both. And in the ideal world, you build good content that builds authority and attracts links. All, it's all singing, all dancing, you know, that's ticking all the boxes, right? That's that's a lovely, <laughs> lovely thing to have. That's the pipe dream. <laughs> exactly. That exactly. doesn't happen. <laughs> but Anthony, you shouldn't worry about it because it's just SEO. It's not worth worrying about. But the um, the the phrase build content that attracts links naturally, in my experience, they're unicorns. It very rarely happens yeah. that you just, unless you're an already popular site, if you write good content and you're kind of an unknown site, generally your content will be unknown regardless of how good it is. Wow. Just destroying um, everyone's dreams. Yeah. So you need, you need <laughs> to pair it up. So I think to give you a specific answer, if you're building content and you're not going to worry about link building, I would focus very sharply on zero volume, long tail stuff that you can rank for basically without links. If you want to rank for stuff with search volume, you need to work out a strategy for how you're going to build links and do that. Because just building the content and publishing it isn't going to work um, in terms of ranking. So a little bit of a reality check. It's what yeah. Google wants you to believe, but um, <laughs> it just it just doesn't work like that. And I've seen people invest lots of money in content, spend no money promoting it, even on like paid social outreach, um, and it just doesn't go anywhere. So yeah, nice. That's where we are with that. Nice. Uh, also thinking about content and things like that, how do you decide when it's best to canonicalize multiple variants of a page over simply making one page with a self-referring canonical? And we did actually touch on this recently because, again, we had guidance from Google talking about how to handle similar products when you have different sizes and different colors and all that kind of stuff. And for me, it comes back to, as you were saying, Mark, search intent and are they covering the same kind of queries? Do you get specific users who are searching for extra large green t-shirts and landing on your page, or they're looking for green t-shirts. And you can just have a canonicalized, like pick one of the hero pages essentially, and pick a size and canonicalize all of the other sizes and all the other options if you do have other options for sizes. Same thing goes for color. If people are searching for different colors specifically, then I would say have different URLs for those colors. If your people are coming to your site through a red t-shirt or a blue t-shirt, but nobody's searching green or they're only searching blue and nothing else, make blue your hero page for that product and then canonicalize everything else to that page. I know I've done this with one of our clients talking about they have multiple size packs so you can like multi-buy. So you have a single item, you have like a pack of six or a pack of 12 and then a multi-pack like bulk buy of like 50. And basically we're saying which, which one of these is the best seller and then from, from you know from a commercial perspective and then which one are people landing on the site from from our perspective so i dived into the search data they looked at their sales data and we kind of collaborated and we're like okay this is where 
this is clearly the best selling product. Oh, it also happens to be the people the the page people are landing on from an organic perspective. Let's make that the canonical for these different bulk sizes and things like that. And yeah, it seems to be working well. So would you agree there, Mark? Are you, I think you've covered that. No, I think you've covered <laughs> that really well. Um, Shall we try and get through a few more of these? Indeed, indeed. We've got a few coming in, flooding in from the chat here as well. Uh, let's have a look at, speaking of canonicalizing and no indexing and stuff, adding a rel no, for, no follow on no indexed or blocked pages is fine. Yes. Mark? There we go. Nice and quick. <laughs> <laughs> if a page is no indexed all the links on it will eventually be counted as no follow anyway by uh -huh. google um if it's blocked doesn't matter anyway because search engines aren't going to look so yeah go ahead i don't see why you'd want to but if you'd want to yeah, yeah sure hopefully another quick one here is schema still a ranking factor no no <laughs> <laughs> um so to <laughs> expand on that slightly um google has said schema is not a direct ranking factor However, it still falls under SEO for me because certain types of schema can give you rich results, which will improve your click-through rate or decrease it, depending yeah, on yeah. Your, uh, how the chips, how the cookie crumbles. <laughs> um, but Google has said they use all available schema, including the stuff that they don't generate rich snippets for to better understand the page. So if it's a question of should we bother including schema, my advice would always be yes, definitely, because you are doing your job as an SEO, which is helping uh, search engines understand your website, your content, your structure, your authors, your media types, the links between them all, which is going to, I think, help you even more when we transition beyond 10 blue links um, that we're, <laughs> st we're still kind of at. Yeah. Um, with, with some bells and whistles on. And we talked about the power of schema as well, like product schema. If you don't have product schema, you're not going to get your items included from the merchant center into the Google shopping feed and things like that, which you can now do with organic results, by the way, for those of you who haven't caught up on the news we talked about a few months ago, you're now getting organic results in that shopping feed alongside the paid results as well. So yeah, schema is very powerful, but is definitely not a ranking factor. On to next, another live one here from Ben Kingsbury. Which aspects of SEO would you prioritize for a website that has rather specific audiences and often very low search volume on relevant search queries? This sounds like a job. For also ask.com, Mark Williams Cook. <laughs> yeah, so I'm going to again interpret it when you said specific audiences and low search volumes as it's just maybe um, not an unknown solution because there's, there's two possibilities here. So if we deal with startups who kind of invent a new product or a new solution, the audience is small because they don't know that solution exists, so the search volume doesn't exist. So generally, from a search strategy point of view, there is a different strategy we take in terms of deciding the thing that we want to create demand for and setting up the site to rank for that and then using other online digital marketing strategies to generate demand so you are the google of whatever that um industry is if we're just talking about it's a really small search volume specific um area then have a look at the brighton seo talk i did called effective zero volume keyword research because it goes into depth about zero volume keyword strategies how 
even if you think a term only has 50 searches a month, there's probably 100 related questions to that. And there's five ways to ask all of those different questions. And they each have five searches a month. It actually stacks up to quite a lot of search volume. Um, you can and, find that on YouTube, by the way, folks. That is available for free. Yeah. So if you just do a search for um, effective zero volume keyword research, you should find it. Hopefully it should be the first result if Google's <laughs> updates are working. If you've got your YouTube SEO if, sorted, Mark. It's very helpful content. <laughs> um, but that, that's where I'd start with that um, zero volume, low volume stuff. Um, of course, without knowing the, the niche, can't give you much advice about link building, but links um, are a way um, from from that previous question from Anthony Dibble, actually, when he said building content to to make yourself authoritative, links is another way to do that. Mm. That's the how search engines think you are an authority, not just the content's good, but you have links. Absolutely. And one interesting one here. We won't answer this because we've already got an answer from it from the one and only Steve from Systrix. But let's read the question first. What do SEOs need to be aware of when website servers are being swapped? And apologies if this has already been answered. It hadn't, Richard. Don't worry. But it has been answered by the one and only Steve Payne from Systrix, former guest of the show. Fantastic, Steve. Google is very forgiving, according to Steve. As long as the site looks the same, when it comes back, you should have no problems. Steve's seen a lot of data, folks, by the way. So if he's seen it in the data and experienced it himself with a three-day server outage, you can trust Steve's answer right there. So there you go. Thank you, Steve, for doing our job for us and answering that question. That was lovely. Uh, speaking of keeping things, talking about keeping URLs short, is it necessary to keep URLs short or can we keep them as per our need to cover a focus keyword, for example? What is the best SEO practice for creating a slug for any page? I've seen this discussed not necessarily a lot recently, but a lot over the last couple of years. A lot of people insisting you must have the keyword in the URL. A lot of people saying, keep it as short as possible. I've seen kind of balancing strategies of making sure you have a clear site structure. So if you're thinking like slash blog, slash news, slash your headline or whatever it is, or just getting rid of those directories, getting rid of those subfolders and just having it straight to, you know, domain slash the title of the thing. There's a few different conflicting things there, I think. Do you have a, a definitive answer to this, Mark? I do you have think? strong opinions. On okay, this. <laughs> good. Let, let's let's launch into it. Some strong um, opinions to finish us off. Yeah, in ter in terms of like page content, I'm always a fan of not including things like certainly not things like slash blog because it's just wasted space. <laughs> um, I don't like even including things like category in the URL. If it's, um, I like going straight to, in this instance, say the blog post name, because future thinking as well, it makes things a lot easier to rejuggle into different categories or to migrate when you don't have to consider that that post is in that category. And then actually you want to curate it later in another subcategory. And what on earth are we going to do now? How are the breadcrumbs going to work, et cetera. Um, in my experience, from what I've seen, from what I've heard, from what I heard from Google, from what I've tested, the actual words in a URL have negligible impact on ranking. Um, you know, I see sites ranking perfectly well that have query string URLs with no keywords. The thing I will add to this, though, is that you have to bear in mind most people that naturally link to your site will do so with the naked URL. If you have your keywords in that URL, Google will still treat that as anchor text and use them as a hint to what is on the page. So it can be useful to have keywords in URLs just because that essentially you're automatically giving yourself some anchor text. Therefore, I would 
do this middle ground you spoke of, of I wouldn't have these onerous long URLs that are hard for people maybe to copy and paste and things like this. I keep them short, memorable as possible. But if you can, I would include the main keywords that kind of identify what that page is about. If you can at least have a fairly good guess about what you're going to land on from the URL, I think that's <laughs> helpful, again, to users yeah, and, yeah. and to search engines. Nice. Free bit of anchor text advice there, dear viewers. Well, I think that about wraps us up, right? We're coming up on the hour. I know we are. I see that someone's put in chat, slash blog is useful for separating blog traffic in Google Analytics. Yes, it is, but there's lots of ways um, that you can tag that traffic anyway on page for analytics. Um, I'm not saying it's a bad thing, but um, it, it to me... I just don't see a reason um, in having it. We're working on, um, we won't announce it yet, but a, a content site that Canada's built. And um, one of the ways that um, you'll never guess what it's about. Um, we'll come back to that. Um, yeah, one of the ways we're, we're handling this is just going the domain slash and then straight to the, to the name of the article. Cool. Do you think that wraps us up? Yeah, we've got, we got three minutes left. We've so. got three minutes left. So. Thank you, everyone, for joining us for our first ever live SEO Q&A on LinkedIn. I hope you've enjoyed it. I hope the audio quality has been good. I know Steve messaged us saying the audio quality is sounding good. So thank you for your support there, Steve, both through Systrix and being here live with us, answering questions like a third host. We appreciate everything. And uh, Mark, thank you for joining me. Thank you for bringing me on to do this live. I think we're going to plan to do it a little bit more often. It's taken us like 38 episodes to do the first one. We won't leave it another 38 to do the next one. Um, like I said, I've been recording a lot of episodes recently, so I've I've got quite a few really, really good interviews and interesting topics with guests coming up. And then Mark and I are going to kind of try and introduce a bit more kind of live Q&A and news recap kind of stuff in there as well so we make sure we're not leaving it for months and months without any news or anything like that so hopefully being a bit of balance kind of having guests and also covering the news and Q&A stuff there as well so thank you for joining us thank you for joining me Mark thank you everyone in the chat who has submitted questions and those of you who submitted them ahead of time on LinkedIn as well it's very very kind of you and we will be back sometime in the future to do a live LinkedIn thing as well but yes please do subscribe to the show and uh, we'll be at Brighton SEO. So you can see us live there. Yeah, come and live and uh, ask us questions. Please don't, <laughs> please don't ask us questions. <laughs> but yes, we and many other Candalorians will be at Brighton SEO at the end of next week. So if you are going to Brighton SEO, please do come and say hi. I know a lot of the guests we've already had on are going to be there as well. There's some fantastic talks from some guests there as well. So yeah, if you are going to Brighton, come and say hello to the Canda crew. We're all very friendly, even Mark. He's the scariest and he's friendly. So, yeah, absolutely. Anyway, thanks for joining us, folks, and we'll see you again soon. Bye-bye. Are we still live? Yeah, still I think so. There we go.